Hello and welcome to Crack and Code. This is Luke here. Uh, I am the technical maestro that uh, puts together the production of Crack and Code every week. Uh, this week I forgot to press record on our Twitch stream, so the first segment got cut for the voice recording. Uh, we are joined this week by Gavin, uh, our benevolent dictator for life. Um, we are joined by Matthias, uh, one of our core engineers. We're joined by Chuck, uh, our Pythonista and developer Avocado. And we're also joined by Vivek from the uh, outreach team. So uh, they won't get a chance to introduce themselves because I cut them off. And we're going to have to jump straight in to hearing Gavin talk about patch and diff in JSON. Uh, enjoy the show. It's a fantastic one. Uh, and uh, see you later. Um, have the diff be correct for the before and after. So that was not a valid JSON object, as you see. There we go. All right. And so what we get is a uh, swap value. Um, so we give, we give a sort of a skeleton of what's changed in the in the object. And the skeleton says that the name has changed. So we can follow through this path. And then we get here, we see there's an operation. And the operation is to swap the values Jim for James. So this this kind of this is a sort of microservice way of thinking about uh, updates to objects, uh, and we're thinking about how essentially how to uh, externalize transactions so that you can do sort of distributed transactions by getting back information about what has changed between objects and tracking those objects to try to make microservice uh, architectures more applicable to uh, distributed object stores. So give me, give me a, a, a practical example. Like so, so what we're looking at basically is, a, is the interface for a, this kind of diff and patch interface, effectively. That's right. Uh, for JSONs. So, uh, and could just give me a, just like make it slightly more practical for the, um, the slow of learning like myself. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess the idea is like you have um, you have some object, maybe it's a content management system or something, and uh, uh, you have um, some some object that represents the data for uh, your content, um, and then you, there's some change to the content, and you want to be able to see what the difference is between the original and the final. Here we have the the title is unchanged, but the body has changed. And so you might want to know um, that this has changed in order. So supposing I uh, I have an application and I get this data. Mm -hmm. This data then uh, gets modified locally in the browser because I do some kind of update to, um, you know, I, I fill in a field in the browser. I change this is my body to this is my body one. And then I have a patch. And once I have a patch, this is something that you could apply to the original database state and update it in the case that what you were looking at um, is the same as what, what you're changing it to. So this allows you to, to know that you haven't stomped on somebody else's change. Mm -hmm. And it gives a way to sort of um, make it so you could have incremental uh, updates that are distributed so that multiple people can work on the same data simultaneously. Uh, without arriving at, uh, without requiring locks, and without arriving at uh, inconsistent states that, or clobbering states that are intermediate that you didn't see or notice. So, currently in a lot of sort of content management systems, the way they do this is, is with a lock. 
Uh, and locks are a very heavy weight, especially you may not care about what the state is of other fields. So if the title doesn't change, then there's not really any reason to worry about that, you know, or if you're not changing the title, then you can you can leave that up to somebody else. So you see in this patch here, like mm -hmm. I got a body, the body that comes back is changed, but the title is left out. And that's because the patch can assume uh, that things that we haven't explicitly remarked on are uh, are copied. So let's just uh, so we can take this uh, patch, and we can we can actually use the patch interface. We can take the before, um, and we can throw it in here, uh, and take a patch, put it after. And we get back the final object with the data changed to reflect this patch. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But cool. if somebody else, for instance, intermediate, like we could, we could say, like, okay, actually, the before somebody else went in and changed the title in the meantime, mm -hmm. um, then we go ahead and submit the same patch. Um, then it, it leaves the fact that the title has changed um, so that we don't, uh, like, I don't stomp on the other person's change to the title. I just changed the body. And I know that they didn't change the body because if they had, so, so if we, if we uh, uh, see what happens, if they do change the body uh, before the patch, we can my body too i've never done this before oh nice <laughs> in the, live so, experimentation like to that's see. right live experimentation okay so we turn return this object which is uh, that the empty string apparently which is not a good object to return um probably i guess a null object is the right thing to return but it does return something out of uh, an out of band value so mm -hmm. i won't return that one in the end but this this tells you that it did not apply. Sure. The patch is unable to apply. And what? And so when I get a patch back, um, I'm working on like a document in a content management system, and I got two different versions. Can I then make a selection as to which one? Like, do I, I maybe I don't want to apply these changes that somebody did? Yeah. So so there's there's a couple of things here. So one is that a patch. Uh, so what what is required of a patch depends on the context, right? So if you have information about what the say the body depends on some other values and those can't change, then you have to explicitly mention in the patch that you don't want them to change. So you have to give their before state. And I think uh, we may introduce a new uh, slightly simpler operation than swap value so you don't have to repeat the same value twice mm -hmm. but that would ensure that you don't end up uh, changing um, an object unless it's stayed on some unchanged field doesn't change as well so that gives information about the read model that you require so the read model is like those things that you expect to be the way they are and whenever you do sort of operations locally so this has been a problem in, in um, databases for a long time, that if I, I suck some information out of the database, I do some calculations, and then I insert the results of those calculations, 
I'm doing the calculations locally because I I don't I don't have an easy way to do it in my database. Like my database, maybe it doesn't have like deep learning or something like this, you mm -hmm. know. But then you want to know that the read state uh, remains the way you think it does, right? So um, we had some calculations that were made on the basis of some values, and we want to ensure that they're the same too. So this after and before syntax, you could specify which read, what your read model is, what, what kinds of things can't have changed. And that allows a lot of flexibility uh, with doing calculations locally while still getting a sort of transactional approach to the calculations. Um, so this, I think there, it's a very widely applicable trick mm. that can enable uh, you know, every all kinds of calculations to take place in a more distributed uh, fashion. Mm. Okay, so like I'm a, uh, you know, a MongoDB user who's looking at this um, uh, stream and I'm thinking, uh, you know, that looks fairly cool. I wouldn't mind giving it a lash. Like, how do I interact with this? Yeah, so right now this is just an API. Sure. And, uh, so you can just connect using curl or you can write a, um, a client that sends it, um, and we're going to have this up on Terminus X, uh, so it's going to be up on an endpoint that people can use. Okay, so just uh, like, hey, I've just got an API endpoint, and I can just mess around with it, see what happens. That's right, yeah. So cool. you can just be able to send it directly to the Terminus X slash API patch, you know, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll put up some examples of, of that, how that works and allow people to play around with it and see what they think. Cool. That sounds cool. Yeah. Excellent. So microservices architecture, Matthias, what's your opinion? Oh God. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're <laughs> uh, Pro or anti? I'm a little bit without opinions here. I mean, I believe it's, it's what, what uh, a company like uh, Google really does for all their internal services, like just split out what you would normally split out as libraries, but actually just make them little services that talk to each other with uh, gRPC and protocols like that. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it certainly seems like an interesting approach. Like you can uh, easily do things like distributed pro programming, have like services scale out uh, quite easily. Uh, but it gets pretty complex yeah. or it can get pretty complex in terms of internal architecture pretty fast. It definitely can get very, yeah, I mean, it's it's all like like the moment you have communication between yeah. components, it gets difficult. Like components can suddenly crash, disappear. Uh, that's that's something you have to deal with. Uh, there's that's like state is no longer in one place. It's 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 yeah. spread over many places. Uh, yeah, it it does get it does get a lot more complex. But at the same time, I think what makes it attractive is the fact that you can have many different teams all with their own like little release cycle yeah and they just have their own little corner of uh this big uh technology stack to maintain and to upgrade and to monitor and yeah so it's basically i think it's a specialization within the company uh to, to manage uh, what would otherwise be a too big of a chunk of technology to manage. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons that we're kind of interested in it, I suppose, uh, Gavin, is because of its read across to 
generally distributed architectures uh, and data mesh to a certain degree, but in general, that kind of idea of distribution. Yeah, I mean, uh, like trying to make things more distributed is uh, advantageous. I mean, we live in a distributed world and lots of applications are running in the browser and data by nature, you have to, you often have to take data away from the database and do some kind of calculations with it. So creating a mic more microservice management layer for, for data manipulation seems like a, a good idea. And like there's lots of, I mean, there's, we've, talked about it before, CRDTs and things like this that are really quite good at uh, dealing with real-time uh, sort of collaborative applications, but there are other kinds of collaborative applications like that revolve around calculations or something, you know, maybe heavier weight, heavier weight calculations that you might do um, where you, you want finer grain control. You don't necessarily just want to stomp on whatever the value is there and you want some way of describing your read model, which they don't really do. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's, do you think, that's sort of, do you think it's necessary to like, I mean, it's always a, a bit of a question. Do you think it's necessary to go to central first and then learn the lessons there and then look to decentralized or distribute or, or, or you know, it's, it's a weird one because it's kind of like you kind of have to build a monolith or you just do build a monolith, whether it's code or data initially. Uh, and then are like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is getting out of control. We've got to do something about it. Um, let's try and, you know, maybe break it out into microservices or look at how we might build a, you know, a data catalog that allows us to be a little bit more data meshy. Um, rather than, I, I don't know, does anybody start with microservices? I mean, is that a thing? I think people do try sometimes because like, okay, so you look because at of, because the Because of cargo because of cargo yeah, code. Yeah, because thing. of cargo codes. Yeah, like if, if Google is doing it, then probably it's good enough for us, right? Like <laughs> like that kind of mentality. Uh but yeah, no, I I think uh that's some some truly what you're saying. Like like starting with a monolith. Uh like I find when I write software, generally the first version is crap. And then the second version, uh it gets quite a lot better, but I still get quite a lot of things wrong. And it's really <laughs> yeah. the third version of something that I really feel like, okay, here I got something solid. Uh this this is really going to work out. And here I mean like greenfielding, right? Like starting with a completely new project. Uh and I think that's not just me. I think that's uh a far more uh, general experience. And then when like your first approach is already this 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 microservice, very distributed kind of thing, uh, I think it's easy to get locked into certain decisions because you've already done this whole splitting it out in components at a point where maybe you don't even really know yet what the right components have to be. Uh, so yeah, no, in my mind, like starting with at least as a prototype, starting it all as a monolith in one place and, and, and then sort of identifying what the chunks are and trying to split it out from there is a much more reasonable approach. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Once you've built a view, then you might know how to modularize it better, you know? And you think it's hard that... to know what parts you can chop off <laughs> or, or what the sort of, you need, you need intercommunication and intercommunication requires some level of understanding of what, where the, um, where the, where the conduits of information communication are or where you can like actually decouple things. 
Mm, that makes sense. And, and do you think that reads across then to data? I mean, I suppose with data, mostly what you're talking about, at, at least if we're talking about a kind of, you know, rather than a, you know, a web-based external facing uh, architecture, if we're talking about inside an organization, typically the, the point of decentralization is when you might have an application team that are creating a lot of data that you then want to analyze, but it's going into a big data warehouse and it's um, maybe just becoming a little bit too unworkable. So you push it back upstream. So again, it's kind of like, it's like your, your, your microservices code almost as, uh, as a prerequisite. Yeah, I feel the dynamic may be a little bit different there. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, you, you, you kind of already start out from this this decentralized place and from there you you then centralize it further and 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 uh i think that's different from when you have a monolith and and you sort of split it out into these these microservices um yeah it's 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 basically just uh the other way around and like the dynamic that that, that really is at play is there is like who is in control of uh, this data and its updates and it's 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 mm. all release cycle and stuff like that. And when you then start to centralize it, you, you go from a place where first you had a team and they were in charts, but they weren't really, I guess, communicating stuff properly with other teams. And then going to a place where uh, you've basically put some other team in charts, uh, telling them how to deliver their data, how to... Uh, go about uh, their release cycle, basically taking uh, control away from them. And I mean, I I see why companies would want to do that. I see like, like they want a sort of consistent view of like all the data that is at play uh, in their company. But at the same time, like like by trying to centralize it like that, you are not really making use of the experience of the the, the expertise of yeah. like individual teams and and just like like their way of working. Uh, that I'm very worried about uh, that kind of centralization, really. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because it is it is different. I mean, it's kind of fundamentally different from the 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 microservices argument in one sense, at least because it's you know it, it's it's more about control or or something like that than um than, than the microservices monolith piece what do you think gavin yeah i mean i think that 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 does make sense and, and uh, control is is definitely one of the the hard problems is like figuring out the right amount of centralization versus yeah. decentralization. I mean that's really the core. Decentralization is really important, um, but you can't decentralize everything. So the, figuring out the right way to decentralize it is the trick. Yeah, uh, and, that, and that's one of the big ones in in data mesh. It, it, you know, in the kind of original ideas around data mesh is about right. the um, the centralized governance that comes with that, that if you centralize governance, then that, and you do it well, then that allows you to decentralize responsibility. That's right. And that's, that's where the trick is. And that's hard. So, it's definitely hard, you know, it is, it's uh, something we're still, you know, we're struggling with the right sort of ways of doing that. But I think we're, we're coming in on some, some generally applicable 
approaches that would be useful. Mm, interesting. All right, well, let's bounce to topic two. This one, I, right. I, I have no comments. Zero comments. No comments. Oh, wait, wait a second. Before we bounce, Vivek. It's international. Vivek, did you, want to, did you want to come yeah. back in on that one on, 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 on Data Mesh before I, I jump? Um, I have like pondered upon it uh, from time to time, but I've kind of come to the conclusion that you kind of have to hit some kind of scale in a centralized system to even understand what you need to break out and what you need to centralize on. I think it's very hard for people to come out with a decentralized system at the start itself. Yeah. They may not actually even know what is really required. Yeah, I think from the world as we have it today, that's true. But whether that's the world of tomorrow, if people see effective uh, decentralized systems working at scale, that'd be my question. I mean, I, it feels like most of the journey is, you know, hey, you know, we've built up a lot of data. We don't have the expertise to, to work with it. Oh, let's get a few experts in, you know, data engineers or, or data scientists. Let's bung all the data into them. Let's let them work it out. Uh, give us some reports or, or metrics or whatever. And then we'll move on. And, and then you start to scale as a data organization and then things start to change, maybe. What do you think, Chuck? Yeah. Did Chuck join us? Yeah, sorry. I was hey, uh, coding away and uh, didn't realize the time. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Cool. I'm listening in. Yeah. So what do you think? What's your, what's your opinion on the uh, evolution of decentralized data? Well, I think it's just something that people think that they want, but, and then they kind of didn't realize that there is a lot of things that need to be well implemented if they want to, like for example, security and things like that, I think is a cool idea, but it just, there's a few more like practical issues that we have to solve before it get into like really like well adopted into most use cases, I think. Mm, mm, makes sense. Okay. So. Topic two, formal verification methods in computer science. Most of my That's experience great. of this is seeing lists where people write, we will never have formal verification methods in, in the wild. <laughs> that is most of my experience of it. So Gavin, you're going to have to uh, disabuse me of that notion. Oh, well, I mean, or uh, not. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm a huge fan of formal verification, uh, but I think, you know, you have to take it with about 16 pounds of salt. Um, what, what is possible versus what is required versus like what, what is feasible? I mean, there, there's a lot to go in here, right? And it depends on what logic, like what, what we mean by formal verification. So what, what is um, formal verification is a wide net, right? So I guess, you know, starting from, uh, you know what what's used a lot these days in practice is is like unit tests and unit tests are a way of making sure that there's some understanding of uh, you know we we avoid regressions um, but they're they're sort of spot spotty they're very spotty so like you know if you have the space of of possible inputs versus like where the um, unit tests reside they're a tiny fraction of the total possible inputs, uh, so they're they're very, uh, you know, very constrained in terms of what they can actually do. Um, so, <laughs> the idea of 
formal verification is to try to provide blanket statements that you can give. And if you just use like very simple types, for instance, then you can get, um, you know, that you do get some guarantees. And even using simple types, you can get some very strong guarantees as long as you have some discipline about the way that those types uh, are used. So, I mean, that's, um, you know, we see in TypeScript, there's an advantage to that. I think people recognize that there's advantages to this. At the same time, it slows you down. So even just going to static types slows you down in, in programming speed. Uh, it creates some kind of uh, artifacts of the code that are required to get around the type system already, even just with simple typing systems. And then when you go to more elaborate type systems, this becomes even more powerful. But like, yeah, it is International Logic Day, so that, like, I f figure we should uh, give the um, the formal theorists the benefit of the doubt a little bit for today, <laughs> and think think a little bit about you know w where you might use it. So, so is, do you have any ideas where you might use it, uh, <laughs> Matthias? I I do have some ideas, yeah. Um... So I think it's it sort of ties back with with the early conversation we had about uh, like flexibility in code and and like the monolith versus uh, a very split out thing. Uh, like basically, when you start out making a project, I don't think that's the right time to try to make everything uh, formally proved because well you're still trying things out. You still don't really know your problem area. You still don't really know. Uh, yeah, how to decompose it, how to, uh, what what the components are, but as you get further along in a project, uh, certain parts of your project uh, will become more stable and stable, and certain parts of your code are basically going to remain untouched uh, with new code updates, uh, except maybe the occasional bug fix, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so basically, as as a project progresses, you start having a foundation of code that everything else relies on, that is rock solid, that 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 is just stable, that's just there. And I think like this part, like when you have that, when you have something that you very much know the constraints around, that you very much know what the rest of the code is expecting of it, and it's not going to be moving around a lot, that's really when I think you can start thinking like, okay, can we apply a formal method here? Can we sort of take some of these components and build them in a way that we can actually prove that this does exactly uh, what we expect it to do? So that's sort of my take on that. So you're saying that we should build applications without schema? <laughs> Initially. <laughs> no, that's actually exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, no, don't, totally. Uh, I think in initial prototype phases, uh, you shouldn't worry too much about the formal things. But as you progress, uh, you have to start caring. And, sure. and the more you progress, the more you have to start caring. Because, yeah, you start out with a little bit of code and you can sort of keep it on your head um, and know what it does and, and know that when you pull on one end, the other end is going to fall over, so you have to do a thing. But as it starts to become more, uh, this becomes unmanageable. Mm. Big code base, like nobody can keep it all in your head. So you need more and more uh, kind of guarantees. So you start doing the unit testing thing, you start doing uh, more type languages. And I think there is a point where you hit a point where the actual form of verification uh, becomes very viable too. 
but it is it is a bit down the line in my opinion it's it's not what you should be starting out with yeah. unless you really really understand the constraints like if this is some very mathematical problem uh like like intrinsically then then maybe you could start out in that way because it's already sort of close to that but but otherwise yeah i think it's a down the line thing really so gavin here's the scenario for world logic day you've got 20 million trained computer science logicians phds <laughs> all in type theory yeah they That's get true. hired by all of the software companies in the world as the new generation of developers what what does the you know give that 10 years or five years what's better what 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 does yeah. the world look like okay. what does software look like well okay so like where there's 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 um there's areas in which uh, you can have a higher impact than others. So a really good example, the blue screen of death absolutely plagued Microsoft for a long time. And they did some analysis, they had, pe they had their, their people look at it, uh, and it turned out that the majority of these were coming from uh, hardware drivers. It was almost all, you know, it wasn't all of them, but a very large number of the blue screens were coming from hardware drivers. And these hardware drivers, they were acting in kernel space and they had sort of elevated privileges and could just thrash things pretty badly, essentially. Um, and they, they turned formal methods on this problem and they created sort of automated solutions uh, to approach uh, the problem, to identify uh, potential um, like uh, driver errors that where there were loops that were non-terminating, they were able to discover these non-terminating loops uh, under certain conditions. So they used various kinds of tricks like abstract interpretation and uh, termination uh, analysis. And they, they identified a huge number of problems and really killed them. So like it can be done. There's, there's places where the leveraging where the, the, the problem, if it occurs, is so terrible that it's worth expending the extra effort. So my, my personal experience is that to write a program uh, using something like uh, Coq or Agda takes at least 20 times longer than writing it in Haskell. Wow. Um, so that's, you know, and that's substantial. That's a substantial increase. So you really need to, to need that. Uh, mm. And I, th I can think of areas where it's beneficial. Like anytime you have um, uh, some kind of um, software that's being used to drive real world consequences. So for like light switches, you know, for, for traffic lights or for um, rocket launches or for uh, you know, plain software or for nuclear power plants, nuclear power plants these sorts of things, you kind of want to know what the consequences of it. Like if something starts going into a loop, it could be problematic, let's say. <laughs> mm. so, so like we're, we're not going to see it in our Facebook feed anytime soon. Well, I think you get like Facebook's already using TypeScript. So, I mean, it's, mm. it's a, it's a, there's a gradation, right? Yeah. And I think that the, the further we go, the more gradations we get. So, I mean, one of the cool things about TypeScript, right, is it's sort of like a lift from JavaScript. So you kind of, you're living in a JavaScript world. And then there's like, this is F star here. So you have something that's very much like ML. And here you just have, uh, you know, simple types. And then you can like start annotating your simple types with constraints. 
and then the system actually determines whether these constraints are met or not automatically uh, and discharges these. So you can sort of start with a simply type program and go to one that has much more elaborate um, types uh, in it in, in stages. So you don't have to do it all at once and you can do it a bit at a time. Yeah. And then, you know, you have like full dependent type systems like cock where you have like, uh, you know, you're saying that I have an input, which is an associative list. And I know that, uh, you know, this, uh, that all for all pairs in this list, then it's true that they're, um, you know, that it's not in the, the final output from what I'm getting here. So I, I, I know that my ASOC is actually functioning as an associative um, output. Hang on a second. Cool. No bother. Um, <laughs> So um, I just to uh, for for any listeners or, or viewers, just to be clear, I still get that blue screen of death from Microsoft. It has oh, not yeah, been solved, really? not so often yeah. anymore, but I still get it, and it is annoying still today. It has a little face on it these days, a little kind of smiley face. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's, which, uh, that's which an improvement is, there. Well, like Clippy, yeah. if, if we could get Clippy back, it'd even better improve. So Chuck. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, well, Clippy was ahead of his time. Come on, let's be honest. Like, all we have is Clippy now, all Intercom. Like, Intercom <laughs> is a Clippy company. Yeah. That's what all those yeah. little chatbot guys are, you know? They're yeah, little any, Clippy. Any website now, like, even e-commerce website, they always have these, like, chatbot thing, you know? Like, exactly. Know Clippy a, was a like a, he's like a messiah, like a guru of chatbots. <laughs> um, uh, so, Chuck, you, you know, you come from the Python tradition. It's, uh, it's dynamically typed. Um, which which means that people can get started easier, but uh, you know there's probably some downsides to that. So what do, what do you think about all this formal verification method stuff? Well, nowadays, like you know, we try to put that back in place. Like so, for people who are more like advanced user, or like you know, they have they are not just like you know people doing hobby projects, but like you know, work in an enterprise that they may have like a huge amount of code. You you need that, you know. That's why other type checking things like are now in place but i think it's good to make it optional so like i i can see that like could be useful but it kind of is not useful until you get to a certain level so yeah so it's kind of like i think it's good to have the option to do that um i just like think that i, I can't think of a better way to implement it more elegantly than what it is right now because i am not so <laughs> i'm not like better than any other people like you know those, those like talented people who are maintaining python so yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just like it's, it's good it's good what it is right now i, I don't <laughs> have any complaints or anything so yeah yeah so i suppose like if a bank is running a bunch of python code to govern some very important process would they be putting in place some of that you know the, some of those kind of general formal method type things to put in, to to work it out? Yeah, Python can be quite rigid if you really edit all these tools to like make it very rigid, like you know all these like formatting tools or like you know because people would be like, oh yeah, it's like it doesn't lack so much. Like I, I mean, like some people would be like when when I, also I feel like when I start a Python, it's like oh it's so flexible, everything is so flexible. But like if you edit those kind of other tools that make it like really check everything or like you know if you when you write your code you really does check everything it could be it could it could be quite um quite have uh foolproof i would say it's nothing is perfect but like we do have a lot of tools out there that could like mm. check a lot of stuff so yeah cool cool so 
Let's move on to our third topic. We're running out of time. Oh, sorry, sorry. Ran out of time. No, 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 Matthias. Let's hear. Let's hear. We we always have more time. Always more time. Always more time. You know. I want to just a little to give a little bit of pushback against the idea of like being able to incrementally introduce typing in a language until you're basically at the point of a cog or an agda. And that is that, that when you look at those languages, uh, like everything is actually part of the language. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, wh- when you have a language like uh, C or Python or whatever, uh, a lot of the stuff you do in the language actually manipulates something that is outside of the language. Like, for example, you, uh, you, you drive some piece of hardware or whatever and Basically, you give it commands, but like what that thingy actually does is not embedded in the language. It's basically an understanding, a contract uh, that you keep in your head. And you can't really do that when it comes to something like Corco Agda. Like everything has to be in the language in order to be able to uh, reason about it. Uh, so there's no real way to choose that like some bits you will just type a little bit and some other bits you will type a lot. Uh, to me, it kind of seems like it has to be an all or nothing when you actually go like like go to that extreme and 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 that's a little bit tricky because i think that is the kind of guarantees you do want when you build a, a nuclear power plant or whatever but you can't really get there starting out from uh, a python script and i'm just wondering if if that's something that uh, gavin agrees with or if he thinks i'm talking total nonsense there well, I mean, it's not—it's not total nonsense. There's, uh, there's, <laughs> there you it's, go. It's, it's Kill by faint praise, not but total nonsense. It's not total nonsense, <laughs> but like there's ways and means. Like I've—I've I've written um, Agda programs that manipulate stuff that comes from outside, and what basically what happens is you have—you uh, have to mix the dynamic uh, with the static. Uh, so, like at, at boundaries. In order to marshal into a static universe, you need to have some dynamic check. So there are exceptional mm. cases that must happen only at runtime. Uh, but once you've done that, you can marshal into the static world from that dynamic check. Because if you're allowed to abort or you're allowed to throw on an exceptional case, then you do that. So for instance, like if you had a nuclear code program and it it doesn't accept temperatures higher than 1200 degrees because if they're higher than 1200 degrees then uh you know all hell is already broken loose then maybe you know on the marshalling of the data object you you can you can then manipulate this as an integer internally and then everything will be okay but say it comes in as something bigger than an integer you have to know how to how to treat that situation before you marshal it into um a more specific data type. So it's this, uh, it's staging is the, the, the tricky bit that, and actually it's still an open area of research, wh- what exactly staging means. So there's a, there always is, is a dynamic aspect and, a, and the static aspect is limited in terms of its scope necessarily. But there are, there are um, you know, in, or, in every case, even if you have everything internalized in the language, there are some things that are dynamic, like the compilation phase has to be dynamic because you don't even know that the term is valid yet. So you need some kind of way of, of, of dealing with that, which is dynamic. Yeah, I think the only price that we're paying is actually like the, the computational time. Because like if you have something like Python that's like heavily on the dynamic side, right? It's just kind of 
is it would take a lot of effort to to marshal it into the static side which is like that's why python code is like very heavy and it's not as fast as like some more lower level code because there's a lot of effort in doing that like uh, of handling it you know being so dynamic so right so so you can kind of build like logical cores that are uh very very uh, formalized very verified but then you have to protect that core with like a lot of runtime checks to do like the marshalling to and from. That's right. Correctly. Yeah. yeah. I would say that's the upfront price that yeah. like the core developer paid for beginners who don't care that much. And basically that got, well, like, you know, it's kind of like the core developer is like, oh, we got, we got your cover. It's like, you can start coding very quickly. Like, don't, don't worry about that. We have handled it. But, you know, someone needs to write that code. So it kind of, when it goes to C, then it makes sense. <laughs> Things like that, you know. That's right. Makes sense. Okay. So the final topic, we've just got a few minutes for this, but we did talk about it a fair bit in the last segment. It's World Logic Day, which is a exciting and wonderful day. And obviously, uh, referring back to that list that began second section, one of the other things on the lists of things that will never happen in computer programming is that logical programming will win through. Uh, obviously, we here at Terminus DB, we're here to prove that wrong uh, because we are implemented in Prolog. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this is just complete nonsense. And we know it's complete nonsense because it's already been proved to be absolutely false. I mean, SQL is uh, is just so ubiquitous. It is so ubiquitous, and it is a it is a, a logic programming language essentially. It's just a very restrictive one. So I mean, it's just false, right? Um, whether or not you know Prolog becomes popular, or whether extensions uh, become a popular thing too, is an open question. I suspect that they will. Uh, because there are really big advantages. And the, and the reason that Prolog didn't become popular was really not to do, it, it just kind of, it was a little bit before its time, I think. That's my opinion, that it just kind of happened at the wrong, at the wrong juncture. Is this like AI winter stuff as well? Like just a lot of funding dried up that, that was going into Prolog at some point? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, they, they, had, they had too much funding when it was too early. And then, uh, and then it all dried up, and then you know it was too late. Then <laughs> when yep. it was right time, you know. But where they, they think of other things that exploded, like Python, like Perl first, right? Perl really went massive uh, during a phase in which people were willing to expend computing power uh, for convenience to to you know to move in that direction. Previously, that had been done once before by the sort of uh, AI in the Lisp and Prolog communities on workstations that cost like 50 grand and were being funded by the, by the US military and stuff like this. And so they weren't feasible uh, to be used in industry probably and, and certainly not for home use. But then in the explosion of the sort of dynamic languages happened, they were basically copying Lisp, you know? I mean, Python is sort of like a, uh, a Lisp with m more elaborate syntax in a lot of ways. You know, it, it has the garbage collector, it has dynamic typing, it has, uh, you know, the, much of the kind of aspects of um, pass by reference. It, it feels very Lispy aside from its syntax. And that it's really just displaced in time. Somehow, 
uh, we never got the prologue uh, update, you know? the Yeah, well, the that's what I was going to say. Like, what what is the inheritor of prologue as a general purpose programming language? Like, where Erling, where where is that? Erling is probably the closest, Erling. is it? I mean, yeah, um, I guess. What do you think, Matthias? I'm not, I'm not sure. I have never worked with Erlang, but uh, it was my impression that it's not necessarily actually a logic programming so much as that it just uses a prolog-like syntax. Yeah. But I, I may be completely wrong about it. I mean, the, the real innovation of Erlang is the whole thing with like like little uh, processes that can talk to each other with channels and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I think it's much more about that than any sort of logic programming aspect. But I'm not sure if that's still also part of, of what it is. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's a good. I mean, I guess Oz uh, was a candidate. Maybe Oz is closer. Um, programming language. So. Uh, and I mean, you you have a bunch, right? You also have Mercury, uh, which which tries to like improve a lot on on what Prolog had. What what we don't have though, I think, is a clear winner. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that really mm. took the share of Prolog. Like even today, like there, there's still Prolog around and seems of all the logic languages if if like we discount sql i guess <laughs> yeah. if you count this logic language then, then prolog is still the largest at this point uh yeah. is sql uh, very large is sql turing complete no, no. i mean well it depends <laughs> i mean could i write <laughs> could i write my yeah. <laughs> if you're actually like a sql probably. server or something yeah, you, you do have something that's complete yeah so i could write my general purpose uh, programs in in sql like i could in yeah. excel I, I remember I remember working in SQL Server and like like a lot of like the the, the hacks and tricks were uh, abusing like its XML parser for <laughs> <laughs> doing a lot of calculations because it could do so much more than just plain SQL. But uh, but yeah, I, I don't think that really counts as saying that SQL uh, yeah. has all that power. Yeah, so it is Prolog that's kind of the inheritor of Prolog. I mean, it, it remains the the shining light of logic programming. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. And Chuck, I mean, that's, that's the reason we are using Prolog and, yeah. and not something and else not, today. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. We'd use the newer one if it existed. <laughs> and Chuck, some, as somebody who came fairly cold to uh, logic programming, what, what, what's your impression? I think it's very cool. I just uh, didn't get enough like time and chance to, 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 to do more. I think because like, remember, like, uh, I think yeah, more than a year ago now, like we try to learn a little bit of uh, Prolog, but um, it's fun, I think. But it's just that, like, yeah, it just, I, I just can't see enough application like elsewhere. Of course, we use it a lot here, but like elsewhere that it kind of makes it popular. But I can see that the, 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 it's, it's being like as fun as Python, in my opinion, to, to code. So I, I wish it could get more popular. Yeah. And more application out there as well. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the, the tricky bit with, with like seeing applications is uh, like I'm not sure if people are familiar with, with Paul Graham and like his yeah. blog post on on the blob paradox. But like basically he, he says that uh, well if there's like a language feature which is really powerful, but you've basically never worked with it and you just know like some other language that's less powerful, and you see that feature, then you can just think, Well, I mean why would you need that feature? I can just do the same thing if I do mm. X, Y, and Z in my language, which which may be like a long way around, but 
like all the, all of these programming languages mm. can effectively do the same thing. Like they're all uh, they're all like Turing complete. Like they all can do the same sort of calculations. But what is convenient to do in a language is very different between languages. And until you have actually tasted that convenience, you you can't really you can't really judge uh, what its use could be. And I, I say amen to that because that is exactly the same argument you hear constantly from relational database bros who want to say like, <laughs> why would I use a graph database? You know, exactly. it, I can do it. In, I can do it in, in my exactly. SQL. I can do it in my SQL. Okay, you can do it in my SQL. Great. Go and do it in my SQL. All we're saying is that potentially this is an easier, more efficient way to approach these sorts of things. Yeah, it's really turning tar pit stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it. You know, write it all in Excel. Let's do it. That's Let's right. re-implement everything in Excel. It's Turing complete. Exactly. Well, you can write everything in assembly code if you want. To. Exactly. There you go. There you go. And, and that'll be a great thing, a great way to spend the rest of World Logic Day, uh, everybody out there. So it has been <laughs> another fantastic crack in code. Thanks, uh, everybody, for tuning in. And anybody who's picking it up later on, thanks for listening and watching. Uh, say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs> yep, we're out. Ah.